Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. In our study of Hebrews, the focus has been on the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we come to the third warning passage. Now, if you've been with us, you remember that the first warning passage in Hebrews 2 was about the danger of drifting. The second warning passage in Hebrews 3 was about the danger of the lack of trust in the promises of God. Today, as we make our way to the third warning, we recognize that all three of these center on our response to the Word of God. The date was Sunday, August 16th of 1987, when Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. On this particular flight, 155 people were killed. Only one survived. One little four-year-old girl named Cecilia. But the impact and death was so devastating, and you can see it there on the screen. It was so devastating that when they found her, they could not actually believe that she was on the plane. They assumed at first that she had to have been just on the highway or walking along, or maybe in one of the cars on the highway where the airliner had crashed. But when the passenger register was checked for the flight, there was her name. Listen to why they think that she's actually survived. See, as the plane was falling, her mother unbuckled her own seat. And in a great act of love, she got down on her knees in front of her daughter. She wrapped her arms and her body around her and then would not let go because nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. No disaster, not the crash, not the flames that followed. Now this is the kind of love the Bible tells us that our Heavenly Father has for us as the redeemed in Christ. We are secure in His promise that He will do whatever is necessary to keep us secure in Him. He will wrap Himself around us and never let go. The believer in Christ is eternally secure and safe in Him. We are back in Hebrews this morning, and let me just tell you that as we walk together through this passage, that in no way does this text teach that you can lose your salvation. Let me remind you of the promise of Romans 8 that is found from the words of the Apostle Paul, where he said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, if you've been called out by Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, there is nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. We have that assurance from the Word of God. 
But for the child of God, your position in Christ, what Christ has made you to be, does not always match your condition, your walk with Christ. And so many times, believers in Jesus Christ, they forget this. They live constantly afraid that they're going to accidentally just slip away from God and no longer be a Christian somehow. And so they walk around thinking that if they make one wrong move, then God is just going to disown them. They see God as unpredictable. They see God as angry. They see God as a monster just waiting to unleash his wrath. And I don't think these people actually understand God's grace. Verse 10 left off, speaking of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 11 of chapter 5, read it with me. It says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It wasn't just that they needed the basics of the faith. Because if you actually take the time to read the book of Hebrews, if you study it out and look, you see in the book of Hebrews some of the most advanced doctrines of Christology that you can find anywhere in the Bible. You see, the author is writing about solid food, the deeper things of the faith. And these people, they actually had understood it at one point. The author didn't even review the basics of the faith because he didn't need to. He says some of you should have been teachers. Here's what the author is doing at this point in the book. He's not telling them that they are infants in the faith. It seems like that. But he's not actually telling them they are infants in the faith who need to be nurtured with milk. He's pointing them back to the conviction and boldness that they once already had for Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 32 is going to teach us that they had been saved a long time. So here's what I want you to keep in mind as you walk through this text with me. The focus is on making spiritual progress. This will help you rightly divide Hebrews 5 and 6. In verse 11, the understanding is that the original audience had begun to let their minds wander because they had heard the same things week after week, year after year. And instead of listening, they had become dull in their hearing. Apathy in their faith had set in. And one of the first things that happens when you begin to slide in your faith is that the Bible becomes dull. The Bible becomes dull. You don't care to study it. You don't care to listen in Sunday school. You don't care to listen to the preaching of God's Word. Believers who have little interest in God's Word. And the rebuke of verse 12 is that when a Christian has learned the basics of the faith, you have the responsibility to actually teach others. You see, if you know the basics, if you know the basics of the Christian faith, you have the God-given ability to teach others the basics of the faith. And you have a moral obligation before God. Now, you can try to ignore it if you want, but you're not going to escape it. When Christians stop sharing with others what they already know about Christ, I think we stop growing. 
If we don't share what God has given us, we start to ignore some of these basic truths of the faith. And then we need to get back to the basics, back to the first principles of the oracles of God. Now the idea here, the first principles, he's saying you need to go back and review your ABCs in the faith. But he doesn't actually review it for them. By this time, the author says, telling us again that they had been believers for some time. You see, I think these are the lukewarm Christians, dull of hearing, not listening to the things of God, wavering over whether they should go back to the synagogues at the first sign of persecution. You can study the scriptures for years, but can become thick-headed regarding spiritual things because you have quit moving forward in your faith. You're going to have a hard time if you quit moving forward, understanding God's word if you're not walking with God. I really believe you're either going forward in your faith or you are going backwards. I don't think you can tread water for very long. You're either pressing on towards maturity or you're sliding back towards immaturity. And if you're sliding, if you're drifting, it makes it very, very difficult to take heed to the things of God. Milk is for the immature. Solid food is for the mature. It's not a lack of regeneration by God that is the problem in Hebrews. It's indifference and immaturity in the faith. These believers continued on as students rather than growing on to become teachers. A little first grader named Max, he was approached by his father. And his father asked him, he said, Max, I kept calling you over and over again and you never answered. Max, why didn't you answer? Well, Max just responded, I didn't hear you, Dad. Then his dad got to thinking about this for a bit. And he asked little Max, he said, Max, how many times did you not hear me? And Max responded right away, I don't know, maybe three or four times. Well, Max heard it all right. He just wasn't listening. And that is the warning here when it comes to God's word. Don't tune it out. Don't become dull in your hearing because it will delay your growth. Your obstinance will obstruct your maturity. Now the next two verses define milk and solid food. Pick it up with me in verse 13. It says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is, what, a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Immature babies only consume milk. They cannot choose solid food because they are immature. It is actually a picture of a person who has been content to live like an immature Christian, too lazy to do anything about their faith, too lazy to grow. And the point of the writer is that spiritual babes in Christ, they lack information, but they also lack experience. You see, growing in Christ is not just about getting more head knowledge. Yes, you need to learn more about Christ. You're not going to grow with a closed Bible, that is for sure. But there's another step. You see, the mature believer in Christ uses the principles that they have learned in God's Word to make decisions daily, to make decisions so that their lives can line up in the center of God's will. Learn God's word and then take what you've learned and apply it. 
That's growth. Now, the word of righteousness in verse 13 is a solid food that results in righteous living. And Hebrews is telling us that as we grow in God's word, we learn to use it in our daily life. We take the principles from the word of God and we apply it day by day. And that is when we exercise our spiritual senses, meaning we start to grow in our discernment when it comes to good and evil. We can see it in the world around us. We know when to partake and when not to. Little children lack discernment. A baby, we all know, will put anything in its mouth. And an immature believer will too. They will listen to any preacher on the radio, on the TV, or on a podcast, unable to identify if the teaching is true to the scriptures or not. And we see a lot of that today, don't we? A baby constantly has to be told no because they don't know any better. But mature believers should be able to know right from wrong. And what the author has done, he has given us four ways to identify spiritual immaturity. A laziness or dullness towards the Word of God. An inability to teach God's Word to others. Someone who feeds only on the basic truths of the Word of God. And a lack of skill in applying God's Word. You see, maturity doesn't happen overnight. Maturity comes from practice. The more you live out God's Word, the easier it is to spot good from evil. God wants us to grow. And so here comes the instruction, verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Let us go, the writer says, key in on those words. Again, including himself, he's calling for them to all press on to maturity. Perfection, in some translations, simply just referring to maturity. But this is in the passive voice. So hear me carefully on this. Meaning that you could actually translate it this way. You could translate it, let us be carried on. Let us be carried on. Let us be carried on by God's spirit to maturity. Because you're not going to grow just by pulling your bootstraps up and looking to do it yourself. It's submission to God. It's submission to the Spirit of God, depending on Him. You see, these are believers in Christ. And the writer is simply saying, get past the basic teachings about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Move deeper in your faith, dear Christian. And he's telling these Hebrew believers, when they were first redeemed, the message was, change your mind about good works for redemption and place your faith toward God. Change your mind about looking to the laws of Moses for your salvation because they were never intended for salvation. You see, what is needed is not dead works that cannot save, but faith toward God. But these were already believers, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This was a foundational truth that they didn't need to learn again. And he adds four more doctrines that he says they did not need any teaching on. And he says, starting in verse 2, he says, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if, what? God permits. Now we want to look at the word baptisms and jump and think of Christian baptism. That's where we go in our minds. But the Greek word that is used every time, every single time it is used in the New Testament, it refers to Jewish ceremonial washings like it actually does here. 
The laying on of hands of Judaism was a part of the sacrificial ritual. Do you see in the text, I hope you do, how the author was comparing the doctrines of the Jewish faith? You see, the Old Testament, it taught about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, the teaching that we will give an account of ourselves to God. These are the doctrines that would have come up with a new Hebrew believer. These were the foundational doctrines that any Hebrew believer would have held to. They would have understood even before they came to faith in Jesus as the Hebrew Messiah. Basic doctrines of the Jewish faith. And that is the meaning here. The first principles of the oracles of God. And then the end of verse 3, he's circling back, telling us that we will press on to maturity if God permits. Again, pointing out our dependence on God to grow. It is his grace. Hear me on this. It is his grace which enables us to grow, to be more like the Savior. Now, if you're a student of Hebrews, then you know that people like to argue that this is not about believers in Hebrews 6. But let me just suggest to you that this is about maturity in the faith. And it's very clear about that in the text. And an unbeliever cannot grow. An unbeliever cannot go on to maturity. But what does a believer who is sitting idle in their faith? They need perfection or maturity in their faith. And this is why the church is to teach the counsel of God's word because we need to move beyond the basics in our faith. And we see examples of the danger the writer warned about all around us. Ask yourself this, how many churches do you see out there? How many Christians attend churches where they only hear the gospel message repeatedly, week after week for sermons, and that's all they get for solid food? Their ears become dull. They stop growing, and many of them turn away from growing in Christ. But those Christians who put themselves under the challenge of the more advanced teaching of the doctrines of Christ, those Christians who respond to God's enabling grace, they grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful picture to watch. Michael May, he's quite the fellow in the middle there, he was blinded at just age three. And he lived, imagine this, he lived for 42 years without sight. But then in 1999, he was given the possibility to see again through a transplant surgery. Now, not many people had the surgery before, but they all followed a pattern. At first, they would experience this euphoria as light would rush into their repaired eyes. They saw color and motion immediately. Everything was new. Everything was exciting to them. But then the frustration would set in because they had to learn to live with having sight. Because it was hard for these people to grasp dimensions, height, distance, depth. They didn't understand facial expressions. How would you? Family members were having a hard time identifying with them because they expected immediate change in their loved one, but they would become frustrated when it was slow. But Michael, you see, when he had his surgery, he was different. When the doctors finally removed his bandages, just like the others, he did struggle at first with depth and height and distance. And he said that the moon, it looked like a big old street lamp. 
He couldn't read faces on people. He couldn't tell if you're mad at him or sad or what. But instead of getting discouraged by it, he took it on like an adventure that he would take for the rest of his life. You see, he knew he would have to learn. And he knew he would have to grow. He knew he would have to take risks in his life and change. And even as he left the hospital, his wife was constantly peppered with questions. Is that a step? Is that a flower? That's a painting. Let me feel it. Can I touch the plant? Let me touch the car. I love this part. He rode elevators over and over again for the simple pleasure of finding the hotel lobby after the ride. Michael went out and he played catch with his son and he said he was horrible at it at first, but he finally got the hang of it. Things that move by really, really fast at fast speeds, it was terrifying to him, like cars going by really fast and bikes. And they looked closer to him than they really were. And he struggled at times, but he didn't get discouraged because he saw every day and every failure even as an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to change. And see, that's what I'm saying this morning is that that's where we need to be headed with our faith in Jesus Christ. Our position in Christ is secure. There's no doubt about that. But now that we are redeemed, now that the major operation has been done, we are on a lifelong journey to change. Get used to that. And you can approach it with discouragement and the woe is me type attitude, or we can embrace it as an adventure that God is going to take you on. But it takes time. It takes time to learn the scriptures. It takes time to learn obedience to Christ. Press on, Hebrews tells us. Move forward in your faith to maturity. Embrace the challenge. Pick it up with verse 4. It's a big text. We're going to read it all. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, there are many different ideas out there of how to interpret this text. Some think that those who fall away are believers who lose their salvation. And we know from Scripture that this cannot be. Some think this is all about people who profess to be believers but are not. Now, let me be clear. Does that happen? Of course that happens. But I do not believe for a second that is what Hebrews 6 is about. Follow me on this. The writer is pointing out the consequences of not pressing on to maturity. He's just trying to motivate these people. And the view that I believe harmonizes the most with the context of Hebrews is that the writer is saying that those who fall away are believers, but they have turned aside from the truth, just like the fallen Israelites in the wilderness. You see, the Hebrew believers in the first century, what were they doing? Well, they were looking to put themselves back underneath the law and the man-made rules that the Jews had came up with. But the writer is saying, press toward Christ. Press on towards Christ. Let's read this again. Look at verse 4 carefully with me and read it again. He says in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now the heavenly gift of which they tasted is salvation. 
And I will tell you that historically, throughout church history, most men that looked at this in the original language have seen this entire section as referring to believers. And I believe the context and I believe the wording demands it. Now, there have been a couple of men in the last few decades who have become very popular and they miss the understanding that Hebrews is written to believers. And so they try to say here that these people tasted the Holy Spirit, but never swallowed the Holy Spirit. So they were never really have said to accept Christ. Some of your study Bibles may reflect this thinking. Honestly, the idea that they tasted but didn't swallow the Holy Spirit, I don't think that line of arguing is credible. Look at the wording. Put the study Bibles away. Just look at the wording, especially in the original languages. And look at the context. Look at the most natural meaning. Enlightened by God, he says. Tasted the heavenly gift. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. You see, these words used, enlightenment, tasted, become partakers. They're never used in the New Testament to refer to empty profession. Let me say that again. They are never used in the New Testament to refer to empty profession, but always, every single time of an actual experience. Once enlightened, that refers to regeneration. When a sinner is dominated by moral death and darkness and passes into spiritual life and enlightenment. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, that God has what? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul also said that at conversion, using the same wording as the author does here in Hebrews, that this is what takes place. He says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, the author of Hebrews is going to use this wording like this in chapter 10 to describe our entrance into the family of God. And this is what he's doing later on in chapter 10 when he says this, but recall the former days in which after you were what? Illuminated. You see, the Greek word for taste back in verse 4 consistently means in the New Testament, complete appropriation. The same word is used of Christ to say that he tasted death for us in chapter 2. It is not that he sampled death. It's not that he sampled death. He fully experienced death, just as we have experienced the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. This gift of salvation is heavenly because it does not come from you or I. It does not come from man. It comes from God partakers of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers do not partake of the Spirit of God. Never. They do not. There are only two groups of people in the world today. It's not Democrats and Republicans. I'm sorry about that. There's two groups of people that are in the world today. Romans 8 tells us that there are the redeemed who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and then there are the unsaved who do not have the Spirit of God. The verbal form used here in Hebrews 4 of becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit, it looks back to the time when the Spirit first came to them at salvation. The spiritual union is the very seal of the redemptive purpose, the guarantee of eternal life. And then in verse 5, he goes on, he says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Every believer in Christ has tasted the word of God and found it to be good. Peter told us that at regeneration, a person is saved, how? 
He says, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, Romans 10 tells us something interesting. It tells us that the content and direction of saving faith comes through the scriptures. In other words, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God, the powers of the age to come. For the first century Christians, they had also tasted something else. They had tasted the powers, the miracles, literally in the text of the coming messianic age. They had seen the miracles of the apostles. This we already saw in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. But notice carefully with me that the text says, the powers of the age to what? Come. See, this entire epistle has been looking forward to the coming kingdom of God. And the first century Christians had gotten a taste of the divine power and glory that will be in the coming kingdom of Christ. Now look at how this fits with verse 6. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame... Let the context of Hebrews drive you, your understanding. Let the context of Hebrews help you understand this text. Earlier in this letter, the author had warned the Christians about the danger of drifting away by neglecting their faith. Then he warned about failing to continue to trust God and walk by faith. And now he refers to this falling away. Now you need to understand this. What is falling away in Hebrews? This is a foundational question. When we studied chapter 3, we saw this, and this is why we go verse by verse. This is why we take the time to go through these books of the Bible chapter by chapter. When we studied chapter 3, we saw repeatedly from the Old Testament that the Israelites in the wilderness were the redeemed people of God. They were the called out people of God. But they also did something not so great. They fell away in the wilderness. When they failed to trust the promises of God, they fell and died. Falling away is a willful rebellion against God. A believer in Christ saying, hey, you know what? I've had enough. I'm done with standing for Jesus Christ. And that is the main point. You see, the audience of this letter that was facing these difficult situations, these were people who, for some of them, they'd been saved over 30 years. But when the persecution of Rome was intense, some thought about being chicken little. Some thought about hiding in their faith by returning to worship with the Jews because it was a safe religion in the Roman Empire. They wanted to blend in and hide with the Jews in the synagogues instead of standing for Jesus Christ. And the words, if they fall away, would be better translated, having fallen to the side. It pictures a runner who has fallen to the side of the track in a race. But I want you to notice the wording of verse 6. It does not say it was impossible for them to be renewed in their faith. The writer was telling the Christians who were sitting on the fence and had not turned from Jesus Christ. For these Christians, it would be impossible for them to shake up their brethren enough to force them to repent so they can grow and move on in their faith. Now this could happen, but you see God, God himself would have to do it. You and I, as much as we'd like to, you and I cannot force another believer to turn back to the Lord and walk with God. 
Oh, as a pastor, I wish I could do that sometimes. But we can't do that. We can't force someone else to turn back and walk with God. It has to be a work of God. Their brethren could be renewed, but they couldn't do it. That would be impossible. But God could still drive them back to him. Now, these are the really, really hard cases. This is when a believer shows his distrust in the leadership of God when at a crossroads of decisions in his life. He has fallen away to a point where he can never reverse the consequences of his actions in life. God will discipline his people. And sometimes he'll even take them home. Much the same as the teaching of Hebrews 3.12. Do you remember what we had seen? It said, beware who? Brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. This is the reason for the strong warning in Hebrews 3.13, the very next verse. It says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, when Israel failed to go into the promised land, they repudiated the redemptive nature of God. They questioned his integrity and his goodness. They publicly disavowed God before the pagan nations. And for the Hebrew believers in the first century, this meant turning back to the Jewish customs or even giving in to a hostile Roman crowd. But when believers get so stubborn, when they turn away from Christ, when their hearts get hard, what happens? Well, they actually crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Let's talk about this. It means it is to dishonor the Savior. It is to take the side of all those who hate Christ. So why would you act like that? Why would you take the side of those who crucified the Savior? Why would you take the side of those who humiliated him? And so to pass judgment against Christ once again is to repudiate Christ and his work. You're doing the same thing that those who have crucified him have done. You see, to turn against the doctrines of Christ, to say that his death and his crucifixion and his resurrection is somehow insufficient, that is horrible. You once again reject the doctrines of Christ, rejecting Christ and his sacrifice, and then you have nowhere else to turn. What's happening in Hebrews 6.6 6 is a theological argument saying, don't you dare, don't you dare, dear believer in Christ, reject him. Just as the Hebrew spies failed to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief, so too can the believer in Christ fail to receive the promise of a reward in glory. The spies tasted the fruit of the land, but they wanted to do what? They wanted to turn back to Egypt. And so it is that believers in Christ who have tasted the salvation given to us in Christ, when we turn back, we forfeit the blessings that could be ours. And the writer is telling us that it is dangerous to continue to be immature in your faith. When you fail to go on to maturity, you are actually doing something. You are bringing to open shame the person and redemptive work of Christ. You discredit with your lives what God has done for you. And our last two verses give us an illustration of this. Read it again with me. It says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now I want you to notice something. Hell is not mentioned in these two verses. 
This is what will happen to believers. This is God refining his people, which is also talked about in chapter 12. If you remember chapter 12 from your own studies, the writer says there that the Lord loves whom he chastens. And chapter 12 actually ends by saying our God is a consuming fire. It's not about heaven or hell. This is about being useful or useless to the work of God. And so I want you to see the beauty of this verse. Whenever the wet ground does what it should, whenever it is productive, it receives the blessing of God. The earth here in this passage represents the child of God. And the author is simply comparing the spiritual privileges that we have in Christ to a heavenly rain descending on the life of a Christian. And the intent is a crop that is useful. Notice that word in verse 7. Useful for those by whom it is cultivated. The believer in Christ that drinks in the water of God's word, the believer in Christ that obeys and bears fruit, this one receives blessing from God. But what if the land is unproductive? What if it just produces thorns and briars? If what is coming out of the land is only dangerous and destructive thorns, God will bring judgment on this ground rather than blessing it. Now, some translations refer to the thorns as worthless. Not that the individual, hear me, not that the individual is rejected before God, but their works sure are. They have been disqualified for rewards. And it's funny because Paul actually uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 9.27 to warn that if he did not discipline himself, he, even the Apostle Paul, would be disqualified for a reward. You see, God does not bless the disobedient Christian. And that is why it says here, they are near to being cursed. It doesn't say they are cursed. Read it carefully. Not cursed like an unbeliever. And not a reference to burning in hell. We see that same type of thing when talking about the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3. And that is what we're going to see in verse 10 when we get there. That God remembers their works and the promise of rewards then in verse 12. But here, the references to the farmers burning their fields to remove the things that they don't want there, but it does not destroy the field. This is God allowing judgment on a believer in the present because they fell off the tracks in their faith. The burning of a field is to make it fruitful again. And remember the teaching of what we just saw in verse 6. Some believers will not turn back to God no matter how much you warn them. But this is what God does with such a person because God has a purpose for you and it involves living a useful life for him and his glory. God is for us. God is not against us. And even when we rebel and move away from him in our faith, he pursues us. He follows us. He's always wanting to restore our relationship with him. His love is always pursuing us even when we're running from him. And the blessing for the obedient child of God includes that joy of walking hand in hand with the Savior, but a strong, strong warning of judgment for those believers that do not live for the glory of God. Those believers who refuse to grow, they become useless, producing only thorns and thistles, producing only those things that are good at irritating others. Many past generations have had some great evangelists in the first half of the 20th century, it was Billy Sunday. 
Before that, it was D.L. Moody. Now, Moody, what I love about this guy so much is he was just a shoe salesman who came to faith in Christ, and he, he wanted to join a church. But he was so ignorant of the Bible when he went to join, they almost refused him membership. And they eventually decided they should let him join. And he developed a passion, a great interest, a great hunger for God's Word. And he spent so much time reading it, and he was so quick to just simply obey what he read that he became a menace to some of the other believers in the church. You see, Moody was growing so fast in his faith that some of the old saints in the church became embarrassed because they'd been believers for years, but they never grew in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And week after week, Moody would come to church just excited and share what he had learned that week in God's Word. Just a guy coming to church constantly excited about the Word of God. I'll take a hundred of those. It became such a problem that some of the older saints who couldn't stand feeling humiliated by a new believer growing so fast in God's Word, they went and talked with his uncle and said, Hey, you got to settle this guy down. you got to talk some sense into him attempting to quiet down his excitement for Christ. Because while they were sitting there sucking their thumbs, Moody was growing until he left them far behind. In the decades I have been in ministry, I have noticed a tragic pattern. You ever think about this? It's not too often that you have trouble with new believers. You normally don't. My greatest trouble as a pastor usually comes from some of the older saints who have just stopped growing. They have stopped living out God's Word, and so they become stubborn, and they become all prickly in their relationships, and it makes them hard to get along with. And part of the warning of Hebrews is that in the end, much of what they've done in their lives may be for nothing. It may all be burned up. 1 Corinthians 3 says of this kind of believer, it says, if anyone's work is burnt, he will suffer loss. But what does it also say? He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You find them in every church, Christians who are getting older but not growing more like Christ. Time is their enemy, not their friend. You see, Christians get into a rut, especially where we have it safe in the Western church in the United States of America. The songs, the Bible stories, they all get familiar to us because we sing them week after week. We know the stories week after week, and we want to follow Jesus. We really do. But then what happens? We begin to drift, and we get distracted. And before we know it, our faith is weak, and the excitement cools, and our dedication weakens. We neglect our prayer, we neglect our study, and we actually start to neglect the church. And before we know it, our faith is weak. People like this tend to think that in time, in time, if if they just wait more years, a few more months, they will focus more on Christ. They will focus more on His Word. Because they've gone to church and seen some wise, wonderful old saints. And so there's a trap there. The trap is to think that time is going to help us grow stronger. But people think this year after year, and nothing changes. Time betrays them. I'm asking you, please, don't be that kind of believer. Because all that happens if you do nothing is that you're going to grow useless thorns, becoming a stubborn thorn in somebody else's side. God wants us to focus on our spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. Literally, to be carried along by the Spirit of God. To become useful for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And it all starts with your Bible by growing in His grace and growing in His Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.